Chapter 4 The Psychology of Religion Integration into the Void Since 1890, but with admitted roots in Kant and Schleiermacher, the psychology of religion has become a new area of knowledge and study, and also a new form of attack on Orthodox Christianity. Accordingly, Van Til has given it special attention, for here, in an ostensibly scientific manner, religion is studied without metaphysical and epistemological presuppositions. Facts are approached directly and allowed to speak for themselves. Such, at any rate, is the mythology of the psychology of religion. Contemporary scholarship, believing itself to be free from the religious strings and human myths of the past eras, believing itself to be father to pure science and objective knowledge, has perhaps begotten myths as far-reaching as any in history, and as naive. According to the psychology of religion, the meaning of religion is to be learned by a study of the religious consciousness of man. Thus, not the creedal statements, holy books, histories of philosophies of religion are central, nor God himself, or any gods conceivably existing, but rather man and his experience. Supposedly, without prejudice, they approach all men of all religious faiths in terms of their religious consciousness. By this very act, however, they presuppose the centrality of the consciousness and make two far-reaching assumptions concerning it. As Van Til has pointed out, First, the metaphysical independence of the self-consciousness of man in general and of religious consciousness in particular underlies the psychology of religion. But if we are Christians at all, we believe the creation doctrine, and this makes man dependent upon God metaphysically. Second, it is assumed that the self-consciousness of man in general and of his religious consciousness in particular has an ethical independence from God. But as Christians, we must assert that the doctrine of sin makes man dependent upon God while ethically alienated from him. The psychology of religion attempts to study religion from the inside and not from the outside. Traditional theology is accused of studying religion from the outside, while the psychology of religion, in concentrating on the religious consciousness, studies it from the inside. This, as Van Til shows, is a most significant presupposition. It is assumed that the objective reference of religion is of secondary or no significance, that God, or whatever gods exist, is not as central or as much inside the area of significance and meaning as man's consciousness. Religion is thus assumed to be basically man-centered rather than God-centered. Before a single fact is studied, therefore, a metaphysics has been presupposed. Moreover, in assuming that the religious consciousness and the world of phenomena constitute the proper area of study and knowledge, an epistemology is presupposed. Thus, before the science of the psychology of religion begins to operate, an extensive metaphysics and epistemology in terms of autonomous man is assumed, which predetermines what shall constitute a fact. While formally originating in the 1890s and descending from Kant and Schleiermacher, the psychology of religion can, as Van Til asserts, be tracked back to paradise and to Eve. When Eve listened to Satan's temptation to be as God and to know and determine metaphysics and ethics in terms of her own consciousness, she submitted to the claim and assertion that her created consciousness could best know itself reality, and a religious consciousness if she cut herself loose from God. Only then would a fair and open-minded knowledge be possible. The outside witnesses denied validity.
to assume that religion has reference to God and that man's consciousness, as a created consciousness, can have no meaning apart from God and his will, is regarded as being unscientific. The truth or falsity of religion becomes increasingly irrelevant. The significant area is inside, in the human consciousness. The religious consciousness must be a complete statement within itself. It cannot be dependent on any superhuman or supernatural elements without losing its validity and its scientific nature. God, therefore, can exist only as an aspect of human consciousness and experience. The basic reality is man. Although not all religious psychologists are consistent in maintaining this position, even John Biley, in commenting on Socrates, is ready to say, we are then doing no more than following the very oldest tradition in this matter if we define the business of theological science as the interrogation of the religious consciousness with a view to discovering what religion is. Thus, according to Van Til, the psychology of religion first assumes a false neutrality while actually being committed to a metaphysics and epistemology. And, second, it assumes that the mind of man is central and can and does act independently of God. Third, it is assumed that the mind of man not only acts independently, but in a self-contained entity. All these are assumptions which should be first established metaphysically and epistemologically. As Van Til comments, we maintain that their starting point makes it incumbent upon them to show us that it is reasonable to suppose that human experience, the human consciousness, has sprung out of the void. James, Biley, Pratt, Luba, Ames, and others all assume that which of necessity they must first prove. Often they candidly admit the arbitrariness of this definition of religion, but only to assert, as does James Bissett Pratt, that this, like all other definitions of religion, is more or less arbitrary because they hold to an ultimate philosophical skepticism when it suits their purposes. Because the religious consciousness is determinative for them in defining religion, they will not limit their definition to the Christian consciousness, but work in terms of a general religious consciousness of the human race, including all faiths from all cultures. This is a logical procedure. If the universe is the chance product of a purposeless reality, and the race of man has evolved out of an ocean of bare possibility, then it becomes natural for us to consult the majority to establish the truth. But in terms of such an approach, truth itself becomes remote, because man's knowledge of the ocean of bare possibility is too fragmentary for any adequate report on truth. Thus, even the majority opinion of the religious consciousness gives no more than a report on a particular phrase of phenomena and nothing more. But if the universe is indeed created by God, then man's religious consciousness, or, more accurately, his conscious and subconscious life, are also created by God and bear witness to him. And because man's conscious and subconscious life, since the fall is under the influence of sin and ethical alienation from God, it follows that his religious consciousness expresses that alienation in terms of false religion and a man-centered rather than God-centered orientation. To assume the ultimacy of chance, the independence of the human consciousness from God, and the centrality of the consciousness to religion and truth is to begin, not with scientific neutrality, but philosophical and religious prejudice and predetermination of factuality. And this the psychology of religion does. Its method is governed by these myths. 
As Van Til points out, position and method go hand in hand. The Christian method always presupposes the existence of God, while the non-Christian method leaves God out of consideration. In this latter methodology, they study first their own experience, second, the religious experience of other living persons, and third, religious autobiographies and writings. The place where we look for evidence reveals clearly what we consider valid evidence to be. Furthermore, as Van Til adds, having determined by their presuppositions what constitutes evidence, they must again employ a standard of values in order to make a critical evaluation of the material at hand. In this way, too, they say they are only applying the general scientific method of modern times. As to the last claim, that the psychologist of religion is simply seeking to apply the modern scientific method, there can be no doubt but that this is true. Only, we remark, this is no guarantee that its method is sound. We believe that the modern scientific method itself is suffering from the same disease that we have said the psychologists are suffering from particularly. Namely, they have no well-thought-out conception as to the relation of the universe and the particular. Thus, the psychologist of religion, while claiming to do away with all bias and to be neutral in his approach to religion, is lacking in sufficient psychological insight to see his own bias and utter lack of neutrality. He believes that he approaches particulars without universals, failing to see that the very particulars he approaches are already predetermined by his universals. Of all myth-makers, none is more naive than modern man. Van Til summarizes the method and its presuppositions most tellingly. First, it is assumed that the religious consciousness is an independent entity. Second, the religious consciousness gives witness to the idea of God among other things. Third, the authentic manifestations of this religious consciousness are to be found everywhere in the world. Fourth, the principles of interpretation used in interpreting this religious consciousness must be deduced entirely from the religious consciousness itself, and only the end product of all this can be seriously called theology in any scientific sense. This method and this alone is regarded as valid, because through this alone are we placed directly in touch with objective reality, and the religious consciousness is the domain of objective reality. Moreover, this method first of all presupposes that the God of Scripture, the ontological trinity, the self-existent and self-sufficient God, does not exist. No God who establishes the principles of all interpretation by virtue of his creation and his providence is tolerated, but at best a limited God who must deal with an alien universe. The self-sufficiency of God is replaced with the self-sufficiency of the religious consciousness, and this is a point of central importance. In recent years, the psychology of religion has lost its position of eminence to existentialism, but the self-sufficiency of the religious consciousness of autonomous man remains as the constant factor on the changing theological scene. And here is metaphysics even though it parades as scientific neutrality. Second, the Christian distinction between good and evil disappears, because evil is made equally ultimate with good, and all manifestations of the religious consciousness equally authentic. We might speak of this as an ethics of the ultimacy of evil. Third, it is assumed that nothing is true that cannot be verified in the religious consciousness of every person. 
Hence it follows that the special revelations granted to prophets must be excluded because they do not constitute common human experience. Instead of the human consciousness being regarded first as created and second as fallen, and hence perverted in its judgments, the human consciousness is made self-sufficient and judge over God. Truth is that which is verifiable in the religious consciousness of Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, animist, and everyone. Fourth, the psychology of religion is definitely anti-intellectualistic and in that it seeks to get at religious experience prior to its intellectual interpretation. Yet it is only through intellectual interpretation that the religious experience can be spoken of to others. This goes hand in hand with the historic relativism. When the psychology of religion claims that the facts are allowed to speak for themselves, it reveals its utter inability to recognize the nature of a fact. If factuality is brute factuality, then, as Van Til points out, all the facts in any historical series have equal value. It becomes impossible for any one historical fact to be given eminence over another, or a particular group to be singled out for use. No standard of judgment could be evolved from a mere historical series. Moreover, no merely historical series can raise any criterion or value in and by itself. To assume that particulars in a series have relationship one to another in terms of a universal is to assume more than any historical series is capable of giving. It is to think metaphysically rather than descriptively. Before the psychologist of religion begins his search for a universal in the particular historical series, he designates it as his field. He has already presupposed the universal he claims to be intent on discovering. Moreover, he has presupposed also the equal ultimacy of the eternal and the temporal. In this view, as Van Til shows, man becomes an absolutely historical being. His life has no divine frame of reference and created interpretation. As a result, man's life can only be understood by understanding his history, because history alone is the area of meaning of both particulars and universals. And since the particular supposedly is prior to the universal in this approach, a search for the absolutely individual, the true particular, ensues. Hence, the past becomes important, more so than the future, and the past gives only an endless and never-to-be-completed process and procession of data. Then comes the question what history is. Man, as an exclusively historical being, becomes a problem to himself. All this points towards nothing more than bare description and ultimate subjectivism, towards a relativism which negates all meaning and makes impossible a solution to the one and many problem. Against all this, Christianity offers, as Van Til points out, a solution to the one and many problem and an answer to the historical problem created by relativism. First of all, basic to the Christian view is the metaphysical presupposition involved in the doctrine of creation, that God is an absolutely self-conscious and self-sufficient being, an absolute personality, triune in nature, and the solution of the one and many problem. There is no remnant of unconsciousness, a potentiality in the being of God, because the persons of the Trinity are mutually exhaustive. Thus, there cannot be anything unknown to God that springs from his own nature. Then, too, there was nothing existing beyond this God before the creation of the universe. Hence, the time-space world cannot be a source of independent particularity. 
the space-time universe cannot even be a universe of exclusive particularity. It is brought forth by the creative act of God, and this means in accordance with the plan or the universal of God. Hence, there must be in this world universals as well as particulars. Moreover, they can never exist in independence of one another. They must be equally ultimate, which means in this case that they are both derivative. Now, inasmuch as this is the case, God cannot be confronted by an absolute particularity that springs from the space-time universe any more than he can be confronted by an absolute particularity that should spring from a potential aspect of his own being. Hence, in God the one and the many are equally ultimate, which in this case means absolutely ultimate. Second, Christianity has, as Van Til states, the epistemological presupposition of revelation. All facts being created facts, factuality can only be understood in subordination to God. But to understand factuality, man needs a norm, and this scripture provides. These two presuppositions give a standard of judgment, which, applied to the psychology of religion, leads immediately to certain conclusions. First of all, Van Til asserts, the Christian theist will not seek for the origin or nature of religion in historism in a search for the absolute particular, in an attempt to establish a native witness for religion in the particular historical person in isolation from and independent of God. Second, neither will the consistent Christian seek his knowledge in an impersonal eternalism as the alternative to the blind alley of the absolute particular. Such a course is, as Van Til points out, a flight from one blind alley into another. Third, neither is there any solution to be found in a mixture of temporalism and eternalism. Blindness added to blindness gives no sight. This course takes reality as it is, as ultimate and answers no questions concerning the permanent and the changeable, the historical and the eternal, the particular and the universal. These three points are again stated by Van Til in another aspect. First, the method of abstract description is denied. This is merely historism, and involves a metaphysics of temporalism. Second, rejected also is the method of explanation that seeks for a norm in abstract universals which are thought of as eternal. And third, we will not follow those who seek for a combination of description and explanation by seeking to find the universal as well as the particular in the temporal stream. Van Til's approach involves, first of all, the concept of God as absolute personality and the standard of human thought. Man's thinking is analogical to God's thinking. Man does not live independently of God, nor does he live independently of the humanity of which he is a member. His individuality is real, but it is dependent and part of a whole, and his witness to God is not independent and native, but is based on the presupposition of God. Since God is the ground of man's being, and man's thinking must be analogical, then it follows that man's witness to God must be reflective. But since God has created man as a harmonious unity, the feelings cannot be set in opposition to the intellect, although the answer will be in the direction of rationality rather than irrationality. Moreover, since the frame of reference is always to the absolute God, it follows that all religions cannot be true, but only that which recognizes God and uses him as its standard of religion. Thus the native religious consciousness cannot be accepted at face value, but only in terms of its reference to the one true religion. Second, 
God having spoken in Scripture, the Scriptures must be used to determine what is true and false. God had to make himself known externally in order that the sinner might know him at all. The psychology of religion has, according to Van Til, followed general psychology in what he so aptly calls his steady trend towards integration into the void. Nineteenth-century general psychology, associationism, was Cartesian and characterized by intellectualism and atomism, and a belief that the mind of man is independent of God. Twentieth-century psychology has furthered the revolt against Christian theism by wiping out the borderline that separated man from the beast, and the beast from the inorganic world thus reducing man to a focus of action and interaction in the sea of an ultimate irrationalism. First came the rebellion against the intellectualism of associationism. From Van Til's perspective, this was potentially healthy, in that biblical faith equalizes all aspects of man's personality, but the dethroning of the intellect was not done for theistic reasons, but to promote irrationalism. Second, the new psychology reacted against the separation of the soul from the body. Again, Van Til recognized the potentially theistic value of this step, but not when its purpose is to wipe out the distinction between soul and body. Third, the new psychology gave particular emphasis on child psychology, whereas the older was almost an adult psychology which treated children as miniature adults. The intellectualism of the older view could do no justice to the individual, whereas the new, by emphasizes the emotional and volitional in man, inevitably emphasizes individuality. The Christian insists on justice being done to the emotional and volitional, as well as the individuality of man, but only in terms of the image of God. The new psychology, according to Van Til, holds to an ultimate activism, with personality viewed as man's self-accomplishment rather than the creation of God. As Van Til observes, according to the Christian view then, variability can mean only that man's personality is not fully developed when created but grows into the pattern set for it by God. The activity by which personality realizes itself is to be sure, very genuine and significant only because it acts before the background of the plan of God. The integration of personality, that is, the constant readjustment of the particular and the universal within itself, and the constant readjustment of the whole personality as an individual to the universal found in the universe beyond itself, takes place by a more ultimate and constant readjustment of the individual together with his surroundings to God, who is the absolute particular and the absolute universal combined in one ultimate personality. The integration of personality, according to the Christian view, is an integration toward and by virtue of an ultimate self-sufficient personality. In contrast with this, the modern concept of the integration of personality is an integration into the void. We can best appreciate this if we note that the concept purpose itself has been completely internalized. Fourth, the decline into irrationalism saw next the emphasis on the unconscious. The adult is to be interpreted in terms of the child, and both adult and child are to be understood in terms of unconscious drives, so that the whole of conscious life is made largely subordinate to man's unconscious life. Reason and intelligent purpose are underrated or undercut. Here again, the Christian can see potential good in this step. Since man was created a character, 
in part conscious and in part unconscious, all his life was directed toward God. Responsibility is not merely on the conscious but on the unconscious level. Man's childhood is related to his maturity, his subconscious life, to his self-conscious life, and in the whole of his life he is responsible to God, the absolute personality. The whole of his life needs therefore to be understood in terms of creation and his status as an analogical personality. The Christian view of the subconscious emphasizes responsibility. Secular psychology undercuts or negates responsibility with its concept of the subconscious. In a world of ultimate chance, man cannot be a responsible being. Responsibility and chance cannot coexist. In Van Til's incisive words, the real reason why modern psychology has left no room for responsibility is found in the fact that it has taken the whole of the human personality in all its aspects, self-conscious and subconscious, and immersed it in an ultimate metaphysical void. Man cannot be responsible to the void. Hence, the only way in which we can establish human responsibility is by showing the ultimate irrationalism of all non-theistic thought of which modern psychology is, but a particular manifestation. In that way, we place man self-consciously and subconsciously in every aspect of his person before the personality of God. Man is responsible in the whole of his personality, but only if he is the creature of God. Man before God is the only alternative to man in the void. Because modern psychology moves steadily in the direction of integration into the void, it is not surprising that the fifth step is the study of abnormal psychology. This again is not without value and has thrown light on both normal and abnormal behavior. But the fact of such study is not as important as the reason for it, i.e., the assumption that both normal and abnormal are both natural and hence normal. It is the denial of any norm. It is the attitude that led Kinsey to define the six steps of sexual activity as masturbation, spontaneous nocturnal emissions, petting, heterosexual intercourse, homosexual contacts, and animal contacts without any distinction between them, all being natural and equally normal. This is an insistence on integration into the void, a refusal to face the fact of God and the fact of sin. The sixth step into the void is in the study of the soul of primitive man, an extension backward in the point of time into the abyss of irrationality, as Van Til aptly characterizes it. It involves the creation of a mythology and a denial of the fact of creation in favor of bare vacuity. It is not surprising, then, that the seventh and final step is the elevation of animal psychology into a principle of explanation for human psychology. First primitive man and then the animals are used to push man back into the void. And if the new psychology is right in its presuppositions, the animal has indeed a certain priority over man as prior on the historical scene and as the source of man's biological life. The void thus looms large, and integration into the void is inevitably the governing principle which guides the new psychology. Meaning is eroded into nothingness, relativism rules over truth, and change governs all things. Religion simply becomes the joyful submission to the inevitable, a highly philosophical enterprise to the sophisticate, but to the man in the street merely a summons to grin and bear it. Man therefore moves into the void progressively, denying the self-sufficient God and unable to establish his own self-sufficiency. 
He rejects biblical miracles because they presuppose the self-sufficient and sovereign God, and the rejection of miracles implies the worship of man instead of the worship of God. The psychology of religion is in effect the exposition of another religion, and false religion is, in general, the love of man instead of the love of God. And the only answer to the sinful mind of man is revelation. Since sin is what it is, revelation must be what it is, the insertion of a new interpretation opposed to the interpretation which the sinner has given to reality. Hence, those who have received this new revelation must feel certain of the truth of that revelation. They must regard other religions as false. These other religions will be in a sense very similar to the true religion. It could not be otherwise. All men are actually creatures of God. All men fell into the same sin. All men therefore hate God and are possessed of the Cain complex. Hence they will all be alike negatively in the sense that they try to subordinate the God idea to other things. They have all worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Even in the midst of those who have been given the true knowledge of God, we shall expect that the remnants of the Cain complex will not be immediately and completely removed. They will not even be fully removed in any one till after this life. Therefore, we find the tendency to idolatry and other sins among Israel. Hence their desire to be in many things like the other nations. They still dislike the idea of distinctiveness. And positively, there will be a great similarity too. All men are the creatures of God and made in the image of God. The form in which they express their hatred of God will still be similar to the form in which the redeemed express their love to God. Cain and Abel both go to sacrifice. According to appearance, they are doing the same thing. In reality, one was serving God while the other was serving himself. There will be, to be sure, a tendency of separation in the course of time, and there will usually be a difference in externals, to some extent, but yet it remains true that basically it is a matter of the heart. In these magnificently telling words of Van Til, we understand the essential religiosity of man's hatred of God. Men express their hatred of God formally, in the same or in a like manner, to the expression of love of God by the redeemed. Hence, it is impossible to accept any and every attempt of man to express himself religiously as a step towards God. It can be and often is a manifestation of hostility which outweighs indifference in its enmity to God. Man therefore needs saving revelation. His own religious expression and consciousness cannot be trusted. This saving revelation is not only in history, culminating in the incarnation and atonement by Jesus Christ, but in Scripture as well. The idea of a finished canon is implied in the work of Christ. The fact revelation had to be fully interpreted by the word revelation. Man does not like the idea of revelation because he hates the self-sufficient God. Basic to man's sinful nature, as Van Til so aptly states it, is not a Freudian wish, but the Cainitic wish that there is no God. He will tolerate only a God in his own image, one who is co-worker with him and respects man's sovereignty and ultimacy. As a result, he creates a religion to conform to his Cainitic wish and a psychology of religion to eliminate the objectionable features of religion by appealing to man's general experience and consciousness as against revelation. 
he finds it necessary to argue against regeneration because it is naturally only a personality that is created that can be regenerated. Regeneration presupposes passivity. Just as in natural birth we do not contribute anything, so in spiritual birth we are passive. But if one begins the whole of his research with the assumption that personality has somehow of itself crawled out of the abyss of the void and is wholly a self-accomplishment, it can never be passive for a moment. Of course, in such a case, man's personality would not need regeneration, but neither could it be regenerated. That which has generated itself can also regenerate itself, if we take regeneration in the non-theistic sense of overcoming the disintegrative forces inherent in reality. On the other hand, that which has generated itself can never be regenerated if we take regeneration in the Christian sense. Hence, if we wish to discuss the question of regeneration with the non-Christian interpreters of it, we should first recognize on both sides that we have differing conceptions of regeneration. Then we, as Christian theists, should try to point out that the non-theist conception of regeneration is impossible. Regeneration would be generation only. And even generation is impossible, because it is activity in the void. How can personality step out of the void unless it is at some point passive? How did an exclusively active personality come into the world originally in an active way? Any personality wholly active could never originate. That which has origin is passive. Only that which is wholly unoriginated is wholly active. Now, there is back of that which is originated either pure accident or absolute activity. Nontheism assumes that back of originated personality there is the blank. So it has chance and passivity back of its conception of personal activity. This involves the whole position into utter self-contradiction. Nontheism has to hold to an ultimate fatalism and an ultimate activism. It therefore, as we have seen, defines religion as the joyful submission to the inevitable and at the same time speaks of the infinite, unrealized possibilities before men. For these reasons, the Christian holds that his conception of God as absolutely and eternally active with its corollary that man is a created character, and then, when he becomes a sinner, a recreated character, if the grace of God touches him, is the only interpretation of experience that does not reduce everything to a meaningless something. As Van Til points out, the issue concerning regeneration is brought to a focus on the issue of the regeneration of children. Here the passivity of regeneration is inescapable, and many who loosely use the term as descriptive of their concept now part company from the consistent theist because, However much they profess to believe that God regenerates man, when confronted with the regeneration of children, they cannot accept it. In such an instance, activism is too clearly ruled out, man's role in regeneration too plainly eliminated, and this they cannot tolerate. No matter how much they have professed to allow God into the process, it is still, for them, man's life and man's house, and God dare not rule. He must only act the part of an invited guest. For the Christian, then, the whole approach of the psychology of religion is anti-theistic, as in general psychology. For the Christian, the whole of man was originally created by God and created good, in his conscious and subconscious life. The whole of man is now influenced by sin. 
the whole of man is likewise affected by regeneration, which, in its conscious expression, produces conversion. Conversion is not moralism, but new life. Its origination is not social sobriety and good behavior, but rather the will of God. Nothing is gained, as Van Til points out, in turning publicans into Pharisees, and much can be lost. Whatever good the psychology of religion may at times appear to offer to Christianity is to be rejected, because, in its assertion of relativism and its rejection of the sovereignty of God, it ultimately denies all that Christianity upholds. At no point can any concession be made by the Christian. As Van Til plainly and succinctly states it, unless we press the crown rights of our king in every realm, we shall not long retain them in any realm. We either recognize Christ as king in every realm, and, submitting to him, gain our created glory, or acting in terms of the Canaanitic wish that there be no God, move steadily towards integration into the void.